0: It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B, as in boy, I-N, as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 233, an interview with Frederick Martini about his book, Betrayed, Secrecy, Lies, and Consequences. While the official government story has always been that no Allied POWs were held in German concentration camps, in fact, 168 Allied airmen were beaten, experimented on, and otherwise mistreated in Buchenwald, where the famous rocket scientist Werner von Braun obtained slave labor for his V-2 factory, the Mittelwerk. After the war, the U.S. Army brought von Braun and his associates to America as part of the ultra-secret project paperclip. The U.S. government concealed von Braun's wartime activities to shelter him from prosecution for war crimes. As for the records of the Buchenwald airmen, they stayed classified for decades. The U.S. government treated the accounts of the Buchenwald airmen as delusions or attempts to obtain undeserved benefits from the VA. Here is the story of one of those airmen. So, Rick, uh, thank you very much for being with us today. Very welcome. Thank you. So, before we jump into the story of of your father, Frederick C. Martini, what inspired you to write his story and the events that came after that?
1: Well, I knew right from the time I was a little guy that something major had happened to my father during the war, uh, and the and the rule at home was you don't ask your dad about the war. Right. So, of course, I was very interested. And uh, I paid close attention whenever my uncles were over or whenever an army guy would show up and my dad would sit down and have a beer with him and, and I, I would pick up whatever stories I could and then read as much as I could about the war. And it, it became clear that this was a story that was not generally known and my father didn 't spread it around because I think when he when he came back from the war, anybody he told didn't believe him mm. uh, so uh, the catalyst, the final nudge for me to do the book was when you know, we were moving my dad was dead, we were moving my mom into assisted living, and I found that she had kept boxes of correspondence and uh, communications with the VA and medical records and uh, bits of uh, reports from the 8th Air Force and from the 385th Bomb Group, and it seemed like a, a modest treasure trove. And when I went through it, yeah, I decided that you know, it, would be, it had become clear that the events after the war were perhaps as significant as the events during the war. So I decided to try and tell the whole story.
0: Yeah, You you said something that, that seems very um, replete throughout history. A lot of people come back and they won't talk about it. But I guess there's just something about when a colleague or a comrade comes by who shared that experience, then it somehow becomes okay or tolerable or the fact that they went through it together allows them to, I guess, access the part of their memories that they just can't do with anyone else because of, I guess, because of those very events or painful memories.
1: Exactly. I mean, my, my, um, my parents lived with, with my uncle and uh, my mom's mother uh, for several years when I was young. And my uncle had been a a uh, 18-year-old dropped into the Battle of the Bulge, wow. uh, and so he and my dad would s- sometimes just unload on one another about what they'd seen and and what had happened. So, I I did learn a lot from their conversations.
0: Okay, so let's uh, let's start at the beginning. So from from your book, your father joins the Air Force, but the United States is not in the war yet. How did that come about?
1: Well, my dad, in in the middle of uh, the summer of 1941, my father uh, thought that a war was coming, and he was pretty bored with the work he'd been doing. And he decided that he would enlist, and then... Whenever the war came, he would already have some time for training and have a little bit of seniority, and he might do better than uh, he would waiting until he got drafted right so he enlisted he enlisted in the army uh became a quartermaster, and then he was stationed in in Dayton, Ohio when uh, the Army Air Corps formed up and asked uh, for volunteers. And as my father told the story, he heard that the guys who signed up for the Air Corps got really good food, and and that that meant a lot to my dad. He was kind of a hungry guy, and uh, and so he signed up. and uh, uh, because he didn't have a college degree, he was tracked into uh, other areas. He was uh, very mechanically inclined, so he went through uh, flight engineer, marine, I mean, uh, aerial mechanics, and, and gunnery, and he became uh, a waist gunner, left waist gunner for B 17s.
0: OK, so so he's in there and yeah, he's hoping, I guess, the experience is going the uh, seniority that he's going to have is going to help him make, put him in good stead. So so tell us about his some of his times as an airman um, and when he, I guess, goes over to and start it starts with um, with the bombing runs.
1: Well, they started in uh in May of 44, he got over to, they delivered a new B-17. This is how they did it in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd The air crew would assemble and be trained at an air base. In my dad's case, that was Drew Field in, in Tampa. And then uh, they'd be given a brand new plane, and they would fly it over to the European theater. Right. And... Uh, so they got to the Europe, They got to uh, the UK, and uh, the landing gear didn't deploy, so that plane crashed. That was oh. their first plane. Wow. So then he went to the. They went to the 385th Bomb Group, and proceeded to do uh, two training missions where they split up the aircrew and assign them to uh, other experienced crews to give them a little time with guys who'd been in combat before. And then on their first mission as a complete crew, uh, they got all shot up and crash-landed in the English Channel, so that was their second plane. Oh, God. And then they got a third plane, and they'd, for reasons for black humor, they'd called the plane they were delivering to the European theater, they called it Crash Wagon, not knowing... <laughs> that in fact it was going to crash. So then the (laughs) second plane they got, they called Crash Wagon 2, because it must be a lucky name. Nobody (laughs) got hurt in the crash. So then that one ditched, and nobody got hurt on that. Uh, So then the third plane they called Crash Wagon 3, and it did a series of pretty intense bombing missions, uh, culminating in uh, their mission on the 12th of June, which was the final one that uh, during which they were shot down uh,
0: so so if we could sidetrack for a moment um, you you mentioned at least two places in the United States your father was at during his training and and I have been coming across this a lot for the Americans when we do get into the war. Had he traveled? a lot before he joined the army or cause I can imagine just bouncing all over the country might've been an adventure in itself. If someone hadn't hadn't really traveled that much. Uh,
1: my, my dad, after his father died, uh, my dad, uh, got a job and bought a non-functional, elderly Ford and rebuilt the engine Wow! and then drove it to California from New York uh, and, and then back. And it was after that experience, he got a job uh, repairing bread wrapping machines. Mm-hmm. And that was, that, he must not have enjoyed that a lot because it was after that that he signed up. <laughs> But he went to, and and this was typical for air crews, he uh, as well as regular army guys. But he did his boot camp, uh, in uh, on Long Island, and then he went to qu- quartermaster training, uh, at in Fort Lee, Virginia, and then he went to uh, Dayton, Ohio, uh, where he was a quartermaster. Uh, assigned to a motor pool division, wow. and then that was when he volunteered for the Air Corps, and the Air Corps sent him to Florida for gunnery school, and then uh, Keesler uh, in Mississippi for aerial uh, mechanics course, and then to uh, Will Rogers field. Uh, in Oklahoma for familiarization with B-26s and B-17s, and then to Drew Field in Tampa to be uh, brought in to a flight crew. So these
0: guys really
1: bounced all
0: around. <laughs> no, I'm glad you drilled down into that for me because I think that gets lost In a lot of books, I don't think people appreciate it as much as they might um, have an interest in World War II. I don't think I think that gets lost is just the amount of training that has to go in to really get someone to be ready for combat or or what's the point. So and now after all of that, he ends up in the UK. That that's that's a lot for a for a young man.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And and he ended up at uh, at the 385th, which was in Great Ashfield which is fairly remote and it was a dry base so he was really bored there <laughs> <laughs> but they they were doing missions either re- combat missions or training missions every other day so wow. he didn't have a whole lot of time to be bored
0: <laughs> yeah that's a good point so i'm going to ask you to describe the events that leads up to his um to his being shot down but I imagine that for him and for everyone else, even though they're young, they're they're physically, I guess, peaking as an 18- or 22-year-old or, or whatever the age, but just the grueling schedule of all these missions that they go on has got to be taking their toll, and they've got to be looking towards doing, I guess, X amount of number of missions so they can finally go home or at least get pulled back some. When, when they arrived, uh, they were told
1: that... Uh they shouldn't worry. It would soon be over. Uh, they would either uh, be dead, a prisoner of war, or they'd get there. Originally, it was twenty-five missions, and then it went to thirty missions, uh, and and then they could go home. Wow. Uh, so there was there was an expectation
0: right off the bat that this was not going to be a cakewalk. Right. So, so, on the day that um that they go up and, and shut down, are they in their third plane? I'm trying to remember I'm trying to keep all the planes straight in my head.
1: yeah, they're in crash wagon three <laughs> okay uh, and uh and they've got a new uh navigator who had done uh at the time it was thirty missions that you needed, and he'd done twenty nine missions with another air crew, and then he'd gotten. Uh, the flu or stomach problems and he'd been pulled out of line and his crew finished their tour and went home so he had one more combat mission to do so he was the new guy in the crew and uh, they were the the, uh, high element of the high group and they were uh, tail end Charlie which means they were the guys in the back who didn't have a bunch of aircraft all the way around them to wow. offer offer shielding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were uh, coming, uh, passing south of Rouen and got hit repeatedly by anti-aircraft fire. And, and the uh, plane uh, caught fire, lost engine, uh, s- they dropped their their bombs to lighten the plane, but then they got hit again and another engine quit mm. and they pretty much knew it was, it was going down. So, uh, Lieutenant Jackson, the, the pilot gave the order to abandon ship. My dad at that point had been hit by flack. So he was only semi-conscious. Um, but they disconnected, disconnected from the planes, oxygen supply and and ditched their flak gear and got their chutes, uh, used their emergency bailout oxygen, uh, but they had to get the the waste gun the uh turret gunner out of the belly turret mm-hmm. and that took time and then when they got to the waste door it was jammed because the airframe had twisted. Wow. So they had to beat on that and They finally managed to get that open, and by that time, uh, my dad's uh, oxygen bottle was pretty much exhausted, and he made it out of the plane, uh, rolled over on his back, and passed out. Uh, So he he did come to uh, before hitting the ground, which was a good thing for (laughs) me, because I wasn't born yet. Uh, And he... He rolled over, saw a church steeple coming up at him and deployed his chute and then uh, went sideways and did a hard landing and uh, got picked up by a a supporter of the French resistance and
0: sheltered. I would imagine that since he pulled his chute so late compared to the other crewmen that he's not going to be in their same area. Correct. And of the ten men in the crew... My father
1: and his, his friend, Sam Pennell, who was the other waste gunner, they had decided to delay opening their chutes intentionally. So my dad would have delayed even if he'd been conscious, uh, although he wouldn't have delayed quite as long. Uh, so Sam and my dad opened their chutes late, and they were both picked up by the resistance. Uh, uh, seven of the crew were, uh, had deployed their chutes immediately, they were spotted from the ground, and they were picked up on landing by Mm -hmm. the German army. And then the navigator, who was on his last combat mission in several respects, uh, his chute didn't open, and he was killed on impact.
0: And I imagine he was, and I'm only guessing, but I imagine he was in his 20s probably. Yes. Oh my God, Yeah. Okay, well, so at least your father, even though he's wounded, he's been picked up by. I, was it just French locals, or was it resistance units? Or yeah,
1: it was a French farmer, okay, uh, who who uh, helped him out of his uniform duds and his parachute, and then uh, put him in a, a mule drawn water cart, mm-hmm. and and uh, and then took him to uh, a family who were active in the resistance to shelter him while they notified higher ups in the resistance cell that they had a downed airman
0: that takes a lot of courage because i have to imagine that the germans are everywhere and i guess you know patrols are roaming or whatever that had to be very a very intense time for for everybody involved
1: definitely uh the it was not a good thing to be caught sheltering a downed airman right uh so uh, but the uh, the fellow who who uh, collected him had uh, an English grandparents and uh, could speak a little bit of English mm-hmm. and was definitely not uh, sympathetic to the occupying forces, so he was going to do what he could.
0: I think I remember from your book uh, a specific decree from Hitler about. I mean, it's harsh as the SS were already being. I, wasn't there something about, um, really, I, I can't remember exactly. I think someone, had, you know, this was the famous, uh, was it the Valkyrie attempt on Hitler's life? And he had made a new policy for prisoners of war? Well, they, they already had an, a night and fog decree,
1: mm-hmm. uh, which which set up that uh, basically if you were a British uh Airman, and you were downed, and you were captured by the SS. You were going to be put down. Right. Uh, after the attempt on Hitler's life on the twentieth of of July, uh, the SS became a lot more aggressive. And Hitler's decree was that okay, if you're if you're from another air force and you're down, and uh, and you're not in. Full uniform regalia, mm-hmm. uh, then you should be treated as a spy and executed. And it was w- the way it worked in practice was if a downed airman was picked up by the German army or by the Luftwaffe, mm-hmm. then they would be taken to a Luftwaffe-run POW camp. But if you were picked up by the SS you were in trouble. You were going right. to either be executed or scheduled for
0: execution. Wow. So so what did your father, besides recovering from his wound, how, how did he spend his days and how long was he there? He was uh, a little over two months mm-hmm. uh,
1: with a French uh, resistance officer who was in charge of the region... Uh, of that particular region of France, he uh, there were three, and by July there were three airmen being sheltered in his, in. Uh, they had meals in his house, and then they spent the night in a false ceiling uh, in the church uh, house. Uh, and then, if German patrols came through they had a hiding place up at the top of uh, the church steeple in a little space above the the bell uh, so they could get up there and get out of the way. Mm. But over time, a lot of things were happening that worried them. The, uh, The Allies, through much of July, were very nearly stalled by the French coast, Mm-hmm. And the resistance was saying, "Hang tight, stick it, stick it out here, stay hidden. You'll be okay. The Allies will advance. You'll be liberated." But there was a a traitor in the French resistance cell mm-hmm. uh, who was working for the Gestapo, uh, and he was saying, "Oh, I've been getting airmen back to Allied lines." All year I've taken dozens of airmen. Uh, they either get picked up by a plane from London or I get them through Spain and they, they get back into the fight. And it's your, it's your duty as, as patriots and as military men mm-hmm. to to go back into the fight. And they asked Max uh, Roulin, who was the... Uh, resistance leader. If you know what the story was with this guy and Mac said, well, he has taken a bunch of airmen, right. Uh, back to Paris. So, but I still think you should stay. And by the early August, uh, the guys just said, we got it. We can't wait any longer. We got to give this a try. So they went off to Paris with, with, uh, Jean Jacques, uh, who, who, uh, managed to route them to Gestapo headquarters.
0: Oh, God. And, and like you said, I mean, the Gestapo play by their own rules, so I imagine that your father and I and I guess the two other airmen are going to be in for quite some time with the Gestapo.
1: Yes. Well, first they get interrogated and beaten, and then they get sentenced to death, mm. and then they get put in uh, Freyne's prison uh, where there are, 168 Allied airmen, uh, and uh, they're all kept in one one wing uh, of the prison, mm-hmm. uh, and they're all told they're going to be executed. But before, you know, they, they had a long list of people to be executed. They were executing people in the courtyard at the prison every day, wow. uh, and they didn't get to the airmen before they had to evacuate uh, Paris because the Allies had broken through and were coming in to liberate the city. So on the 15th of August, they took uh, my father and 167 other Allied airmen and 2,100 French civilians and loaded them into boxcars and ship them uh, to Germany to
0: be forced labor in Germany. I was confused in that part of your book. I would think that if the Allies are coming after, you know, being penned in for a while, they're going to come as fast as they can. I would just would imagine the Germans would just want to get out of there. Why do they need to take these people with them that are going to cost them resources and slow them down, theoretically?
1: Uh, Germany was starving for labor. Mm. I mean, that was, that was a big issue for them because they had so many millions of men in arms. Uh, they didn't have enough people to do the war machine factory right. work. Mm. And in addition, the SS who controlled these prisoners uh, they were paid by the German government a per diem for the work that they did
0: so it was economics
1: so, okay so
0: there's an economic
1: drive <laughs> right. here too
0: right Wow so 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 they so they are loaded up on the train with the guys and they're moving across I guess uh Eastern France, or they're trying to, I guess, they're going back to Germany. And do they go directly to Buchenwald? Uh,
1: They, they pause and detach the cars that held women Mm. and send them to Ravensbruck and everybody else goes on to Buchenwald.
0: So um, I think you said earlier that when your father, after he parachuted, he switched out of his uniform um, how is he going to be classified or treated at Buchenwald? Well, he, he should have been by the rules. He still had his dog
1: tags mm. and his IDs. Uh, but the SS said, hey, you could have gotten those off a dead flyer. Right. You're a spy. So uh, they were not going to pay any attention to that.
0: Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house. In getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Tell us about the Buchenwald camp.
1: Well, at this point in time, uh, it had about 60,000 inmates, Mm -hmm. and uh, the Buchenwald airmen were, after processing... Uh, put into Little Camp, which was probably the vilest part of of the camp, uh, held about 12,000 pr- prisoners in extremely squalid conditions. Uh, and they there was no room for them in any barracks, mm-hmm. so they uh, had to sleep on the ground for several weeks outside, uh, very poor conditions and food. Uh Not the nicest weather as it was turning into fall right. uh they finally got uh put into a barracks after they took four hundred uh, gypsy children out and executed them uh, so then they moved in there and it but this whole period they didn't have shoes uh and they only had threadbare clothing. Uh, you know, one one blanket for every two or three guys. Wow. Uh, so by the time they moved indoors, everybody, you know, dysentery was rampant. Everybody w- had scabies, and uh, they were starting to show uh, malnutrition signs. It was it things were starting to get serious, and they just got more serious after that. Uh, It was in September that the first the first airman died. Uh, Another one died uh, around the time that the uh, the rest of the group was was evacuated by the Luftwaffe.
0: If I if I can just uh, interject for a second, for me, this was one of the most powerful moments of your book, because the, the I think it's the SS they're pretty much just on the outside of the camp going, okay, we've got this. If anybody tries to get out, we're going to shoot you. It, it was almost like it was its own little world inside the camp. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is, and it was just incredible for me, how the, how the military men, the airmen, decided to react to their situation of not, not being addressed as military personnel, but also how they were going to come together and survive. Could you tell us about that?
1: It, it was really the key to their survival because with the way Buchenwald was structured, the the SS kept people in, but they relied on kind of chaos theory inside the camp. They had trustees who they gave some authority to, uh, but a lot of the... Uh, the regulation and enforcement was done by prisoners in the camp. And their first night, it was extremely chaotic. Uh, They had uh, their their little group sleeping on the ground got raided and blankets stolen. And uh, so they, by by the first full day they were in Buchenwald, they had... A complete military hierarchy set up. They knew who the senior officer was, mm-hmm. and he was a, a squadron leader from the Royal New Zealand Air Force. He had lieutenants who were, uh, there was um, one from uh, Britain and one from the U.S. and Canada, and then the men were divided into squads. So, they, and the squads were organized uh, in the event that they might have a chance to escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, the squads were tentative, uh, potential air crews. So it was really well thought out on the, on the fly. Right. And, and they marched everywhere. They had a watch schedule. They had assigned duties. The men were kept busy. They were kept organized, and that shielded them both from uh, feral prisoners and from uh, excessive abuse by the German guards when the the SS guards would show up.
0: Yeah, I just would imagine having things to do, having an organization, even if it's just you and other people making it up on your own – gave the men something to do, something to think about. They had duties to perform, and it probably stopped them from losing all hope.
1: Yes. Hope. <laughs> hope was, imp- you know, if you gave up, they saw that. They saw prisoners in the camp who would just give up and die. Uh, and they weren't, that wasn't going to happen to them.
0: So so you make it abundantly clear that the quote unquote rations they were given were absolutely pathetic there's disease that's rampant they're hardly being fed anything. I imagine they're dropping weight fast uh, fast dropping strength fast and and there's going to be some repercussions for that very quickly at their at their time in this camp.
1: yeah there uh, it was a standard in little camp one of the re- they, they would put new arrivals in little camp and then weaken them. To the point where they felt they were tractable Mm. uh, and then they would let them into the main camp or they would decide they were worthless and they'd ship them off uh, for execution. Uh, But the the damage done to them over the months that they were in there, uh, you know, kidney damage, nerve damage, uh, malnutrition uh, in the case of my dad, his appendix burst. Uh, just one thing after another: uh, scurvy, loss of all their teeth. I mean, this was yeah.
0: a pretty horrific period of time. So, focusing on your dad for a second, yeah, his his the thing with his appendix, because this is going to come back later in your book. Uh, could you describe what happened to him and what almost happened to him with this, I guess, ad hoc surgery or whatever?
1: Yeah, he. Uh, they were periodically interrogated by the Gestapo, and uh, and he took he took a shot with a baton, and and that was probably the stimulus. But his appendix his appendix ruptured, and he was uh, delirious and in pain, and uh, he was moved onto a little stretcher. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't take people to the SS hospital because they would never come back. Right. So uh, there was a, a fellow who had some pharmacy training uh, who was acting as a medic, and he had uh, sharpened uh, a spoon to make a scalpel. And if my dad didn't improve, they were going to try to do an appendectomy. Oh. Uh, in this camp, <laughs> yeah. which would certainly have killed him. But right. uh, in some way, the mesenteries, you know, the gut lining had wrapped around the burst appendix and sealed and kind of trapped the bacteria in there. Mm-hmm. And he didn't get uh, massive sepsis and peritonitis. And, and his... Delirium went down, and his fever went down, and he went back into the group. Um,
0: What are the odds?
1: Uh, Yeah, not very good. But Um untreated burst appendix does not have a really good... Likelihood of survival
0: so so as as we said that that situation is gonna is going come back in your story, so they're in the camp for about nine weeks I just imagine like you said they're just getting weaker by the day and th- and then something comes along that's going to change your status
1: yeah the uh a the leader of the airmen uh had made a contact to smuggle a letter to a, a Luftwaffe base that that was about uh, four miles away from Buchenwald. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interesting side note is that originally when they first found out about that Luftwaffe base, That was one of the reasons they organized the squads as air crews because their plan was to break out of Buchenwald, go to the air base, take over a couple of planes and fly away. But after two months in the camp, they were so weak and so sick that it was obvious that they weren't able to fight their way out of a paper bag. So then they sent a letter pleading for help. And that letter went up the chain in the Luftwaffe, and uh, a Luftwaffe decorated Luftwaffe officer came by, uh, and because the Luftwaffe and the SS were kind of enemies, uh, he had a he had a a supposed reason for the inspection, which had to do with the the bombing of a factory that was attached to Buchenwald that made some airplane parts. Uh, But as he was inspecting the area, uh, one of the airmen, the Buchenwald airmen who spoke German, uh, marched up and saluted and started translating for one of the uh, officers, uh, asking for assistance, saying who they were, uh, that they were being held uh, against the Geneva Conventions. And the... A uh, Luftwaffe officer promised to look into it. And uh, two weeks later, somebody showed up from Dulag Luft and said, uh, boys, we're getting you out of here.
0: Wow. Yeah, because this is illegal. I mean, I know we're talking about Nazi Germany, but <laughs> treating these military men like civilians or like spies, especially if they're not spies, like you said, is is against the uh, convention. So... I guess maybe the SS were just thinking it's just a matter of time before they're all dead anyway. So why do we care about the rules? Yeah, they
1: were when the Buchenwald airmen arrived. There were uh, thirty-seven parachutists, special operations executive Mm -hmm. uh, officers who had been captured and and sent to Buchenwald uh, using similar logic, and they had. Uh, virtually all been executed. And the airmen were supposed to be executed the following week, and they were evacuated four days before uh, Himmler's orders were uh, followed out.
0: Mm. So I I think if I remember from your book, 155 airmen went... Uh, to the next camp, and I guess some of them were too sick, so they would come with them later?
1: Yes, 12 of them were left behind. One mm-hmm. of them died, and the other 11 showed up uh, in late November. Okay. And they were evacuated to uh, Stalag Luft III, uh, which is in, in Zagan.
0: Now, for me, this is the most ironic Part of your book. I mean, I imagine Stalag Luft III was pretty bad. The people there were probably miserable and sick as well. But they haven't seen anything yet compared to when these airmen come into the camp. Could you describe that scene for us?
1: Well, it it was usual uh, and kind of a standing joke uh, that that when new prisoners arrived at Stalag Luft III, mm-hmm. the new prisoners would be shocked. At how uh, unkempt the prisoners were right. compared to what they were used to, and this time, when the new prisoners arrived, the prisoners there were just flabbergasted that they look like walking skeletons, yeah. shambling in rags and beaten, and their you know their their eyes sunken. Right. And they, ju- they just were astounded, and they they responded by helping them to the extent possible, uh, giving them hoarded food and vitamin pills and 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 uh, and scarce medicines to try to build them back up.
0: Yeah. Cause that was the part that really got me because you would think in any kind of breakdown in society, it's a dog eat dog world. I assume it was at this, in this camp as well to a degree, but the men that they saw, these ghosts that were coming in, they felt so bad for them compared to their own status that they remembered, I guess that they were human beings after all, and they felt pity and they tried to help the airmen.
1: Yeah. Well, the POW camps, uh the Luftwaffe-run POW camps, had a real uh, esprit de corps. Mm. Uh, they, they were organized, they were run-along military lines, they had events, they had sports, they had uh, plays, uh, they had their own society. And it was a depauperate society, but it was a society, and it was a military society. Uh, so when these guys showed up, uh, they were really taken under the wing of the of the of the residents of the inmates at this POW camp.
0: So, so I imagine they're given some level. Of medical care, um, I guess they're giving being given more food, so I guess their health in a very modest way starts to improve. But I think they decide not to escape because hopefully, with the war situation, help is on the way.
1: Yeah, well, they're they're at this point in time. This is the camp from which the Great Escape occurred, right? And fifty of the escaped POWs were caught and executed. By the SS, so uh, at that point in time, uh, they were still thinking about escaping and preparing, but it was it was not a a driving issue. Uh, They knew that that the Russians were coming. Uh, There was some question as to whether they would be evacuated or killed, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't want to do anything to make the, the latter more likely than the former. <laughs> right. uh,
0: so. so, again, and this is not anywhere near the end of their, of their horrid story, so they have to be moved another time, because like you just said, the Russians are getting close. I think they can occasionally hear gunfire. They have to be moved again, but this move is completely chaotic
1: and it's the it's the middle of the night uh in one of the worst blizzards and coldest temperatures uh of of many years uh in a, and uh off they march uh, twelve thousand guys in a column uh, through the snow and and the march just goes on and on and on uh so There are, there's, there's frostbite, there's, I mean, it, it was a mess. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes the guards didn't even know where they were going. It, it took the South compound longer than expected to get there because it took a wrong turn. I mean, it, it was, it was a terrible scene.
0: So, so there's even more suffering go on. I think it's by February that they get to Stalag 7. And and I guess that's just become a holding ground from all the other camps that are also panicking because Allied troops are nearby.
1: Yeah, over 100,000 people in a camp that was originally designed to hold about 10,000 officers. Uh, And and, and in this case, my dad uh, fell afoul of the fact that the Geneva Conventions prohibit uh, forced labor uh, for officers, but they don't prohibit forced labor for enlisted men. So my dad was, uh, was used to clear bomb damage in Munich, uh, even while under fire from uh, strafing fighters or falling bombs. That's incredible.
0: So, yeah. I And I remember the scene about uh, the part of the book where, uh, Um, so he's cleaning up there. Others are cleaning up. And of course the, the, the locals around them are not happy because they know that these prisoners, comrades are the ones bombing them and, and killing their family members.
1: And so there was a certain amount of attrition among the, among the laborers. Uh, um, my dad saw a man pitchforked by angry locals and, and killed. And the, the, uh, the guards
0: did nothing to protect right. him. Yeah. Now, I, I, um, I, I can just imagine the chaos. Um, and I think this is before April, but your father and a couple of other men... Figure out how to kind of trick their way out of some of this work because it is dangerous going out there where the locals can get their hands on you, and I guess they just figure out a system to trick the guards because the guards have got to know the war's going to be over soon, and so maybe they're not as observant as they normally would be.
1: Yep. Now well, my dad figured out they they would come in about five in the morning with dogs into the into the barracks units to grab people to. Put him on a train to go to Munich Mm. to work all day and then come back late at night. And my dad uh, found he could wake up a half hour before and go out and hide. And then then after the work crew left, he'd go find something that looked good to do or that would look busy working – the one that he told me about was he he found a mattress, a, a straw mattress, and he put that on his back, and he'd just go from barracks to barracks <laughs> carrying And The guards would see him they go, "Oh, this guy's carrying the mattress he must be in." and so and pretty soon uh, several of his friends were doing, it and they would carry tables or you know whatever, uh, just to look busy so that the guards would leave him alone. Right. the The best story he told me was about a a couple of uh, prisoners who stole a, a pad of paper and a pencil and a tape measure. And uh, one guy would hold one end of the tape, and then the other guy would walk walk out a certain distance and then go down, call out a number, and first guy <laughs> would write that down. And they measured the sidewalk, and they went all the way out through the gate of the camp— and off And the guards were just watching all these assignment, you know.
0: <laughs> oh my God, Oh, that is brilliant. That is So so, and again, that's probably the, um, the, the part where they trick in the guards is probably the, the light, light moment of the book, but, but but this is about to come to an end, and so there is freedom for them at the end of April. Yep, April 29th. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please?
1: Uh, there was uh, it was it, again chaotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there had been negotiations about surrender. The SS didn't want to surrender. The uh, army guards they they were uh, asking the inmates if they could get them a job in the U.S. <laughs> uh, so there was there was some discussion about that that led to a firefight between the SS and the German Army. Wow. Uh, individuals, and uh, when the SS buggered off, uh, then the American military came in, and there are some pictures of the scene. I mean, it is an incredible mob scene. Tens of thousands of men, mm-hmm. all in this in this enormous crowd around a jeep and a tank, and it was. Uh, They were just so relieved. Right. But then they had to stay in the camp because the war wasn't over yet. And the army was afraid of reprisals outside. There were still SS units running around loose. Mm -hmm. So they had to spend another week in the camp before they could start uh, being evacuated.
0: So as far as your father with his, I guess, his teeth, his feet, I think he yeah, had his feet, his appendix, uh, I guess he's going to need more than just a lot of calories to start to recuperate.
1: Yes, they, they uh, sent him first to an evaluation base. Uh, he was there for a time and then he went on to uh, Camp Lucky Strike and he was held there in the hospital facility for several days while they attempted to fatten him up. Right. Uh, whereupon he stole a gun and went AWOL. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> okay, d- don't take this the wrong way, but your father is the toughest guy I never want to meet. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so he's, he's barely, he's only been rescued. He probably hasn't really had a, and I'm guessing he hasn't had too much time to physically recover. And he's given himself a mission.
1: Yeah, he wants to find that sob who turned him in. Uh, so he goes off. He goes first to Paris. He can't find him there. So then he goes uh, back to the town that had sheltered him mm-hmm. to see if the family that had protected him made it through the war alive. Right. Uh, and he gets back to the town, and the town people feed him. Everybody wants to feed him, right. and uh, and. Uh, and they say, hey, we know who the guy is. We'll take care of him. Wow. Uh, you go home and have a, have a good life. Right. And so my dad went back to uh, Camp Lucky Strike, and, and about uh, 10 days later, he was on a ship to Boston.
0: Now, mentioning home, I would imagine – imagine, during all of these adventures, and and I apologize, that's not the right word, but during all of this time, does his family even have any idea of his status?
1: They heard nothing from the time he was shot down until uh, November, when he arrived at Stalag Luft 3, and the Red Cross did an inspection of the camp, as Mm -hmm. they do periodically, and they reported back that my father was a prisoner of war. Up until that time, uh, the family had been uh, flying blind and just hoping. Right,
0: which I'm sure was um, the same story for tens of thousands of other GIs. It was just in that mass confusion, especially when the uh, Americans were moving pretty quickly. But so your father's coming home. I I can only imagine the physical and psychological effects of all of these events on him as he's coming back to american soil
1: uh, he was he was so glad to be home but on the other hand he had a lot of trouble dealing with even simple things uh, the, a car if a car backfired he would dive under a desk or under a parked car or right. Or you know, he was subject to uh, the shakes. uh, Any any hint of a of a uniform, Mm -hmm. uh, his first response was that it was the SS. Uh, He just he was so rattled, and he was in such pain with his feet uh, that he was really debilitated. Yeah. And I, the, and a lot of it continued for at least six years.
0: Yeah, that was my next question. I mean, obviously, he's going to need some follow up care. But since he's a part of the military, I imagine there are benefits. He's just got to, I guess, go through the paperwork.
1: Well, he went through the paperwork, but the, uh, for a lot of the things that were bothering him, mm-hmm. uh, they <clears throat> they simply didn't believe it. Um, he had been debriefed by the OSS and by Army officers, uh, as had the other Buchenwald airmen. But all of their records were deeply classified. And so when the VA went to the Army and said, this guy says he was in Buchenwald. And the Army said, oh, we don't know. Right, and so the VA decided that he was either delusional or gold-bricking, so they were only willing to deal with uh, and credit him with psychological problems, wow. and took his physical problems as either imaginary or psychosomatic.
0: That's, but this is the man who grabbed a who stole a 45, went looking for a spy. So I imagine he's not going to take this denial very well. <laughs> no he
1: didn't and and he uh appealed the VA with the VA uh through about 1955 so about 10 years he was actively filing appeals uh a year after he was discharged he had pain in his abdomen and went into emergency surgery and when they opened him up they found that his That his burst appendix, that it it had happened long enough ago that there was this thick wall of scar tissue around around it. And it took four and a half hours on the table to clean it up. And the VA told him it wasn't service related.
0: So they're not going to cover it.
1: So they're not going to cover it.
0: So okay, so he's he's dealing with all this. I imagine he's racking up the bills. He's got a, or he's about soon about to have a family, and, and I and I've read this in in several other books where when these men are together in camp and they're going through the worst possible moments of their lives, they start thinking about the future. And and some of the, what these guys decide is, if and when we get out of here, we're going to form a club, and this club tries. I, I'm, if, if I get this right, this club tries to help him as well with his issues as far as the, the VA turning him down.
1: Well, that the club couldn't get formed until the names and addresses of the members of the club hmm. were declassified. Right. Because the, the KLB club, or the Concentration Lager Buchenwald club, was established the second or third day that the airmen were in Buchenwald. And they said, oh, we'll get together and right. we'll we'll have meetings and, you know, we'll, we'll tell stories about how lucky we are to be alive. And mm-hmm. and then after the war, because all their records were classified and all the information of Buk- about Buchenwald was buried, uh, they had no way to contact one another. Uh-huh. And so it wasn't until, I think it was 1984, somewhere in the mid-80s, mm-hmm. that uh, there was an effort to start putting the band back together and uh, and linking people up so that they could have some, some assistance, mutual support. Right. And it never really did help with the VA, but it did uh, stimulate an attempt to correct the historic record that said that there had never been any uh, POWs in concentration camps. Right. Although... Uh, that effort failed uh, three times, um, but still, that was a big push for the KLB club while it was, while it was active.
0: Yeah, I just have to say, this, this was the part of your book where I was viscerally getting mad. Um, At our government, just for whatever reason, and maybe, you know, maybe you don't, but they're just being shut down or denied even after appeal after appeal. And by now, I imagine at this time, a lot of the people involved, the the airmen themselves are probably dead, but it just kept getting shot down, I guess, trying to release all the records or, or at least to admit that these airmen were in Buchenwald.
1: Yeah, it would be it would be very nice for the families. Right. Uh, to have some official recognition of the fact that that
0: these men were not delusional liars. Uh, I'm sorry, I was going to say, do you? And please, please, if you want to continue with that, mm-hmm. but yep. why do you think the government is denying this fact? I mean, I, I can't, I can't see the world ending if they admit. Yeah, these guys were in this camp.
1: Yeah. Uh, why they deny it now or as of the last effort to get a resolution passed honoring them was in 1999. Uh, and that was killed in the Senate judiciary committee. Mm. Uh, they, they passed a resolution for country music, but they didn't (laughs) anyway. (laughs) uh, So why the denial now? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, earlier, it was all tied into protecting uh, the uh, the rocket engineers, uh, principally Werner von Braun, uh, who was a, a visitor to Buchenwald to select slave labor, and who had been there uh, within weeks of when the airmen were there, and who my father was sure he'd seen. Mm -hmm. at Buchenwald. Uh, The U.S. government created a completely fabricated history for von Braun. uh, And that, as part of that, all the records from Buchenwald were classified. Uh, The prosecutors at the Buchenwald war crimes trial was unable to name a POW, an Allied POW who'd been held there, let alone died there. Right, uh, and the entire Dora Mittelbau trial uh, records were classified, uh, and that was all tied up with maintaining secrecy over the the uh, treasure trove of V two rocket parts and the recruitment of uh, V two rocket engineers.
0: Yeah, um, throughout this interview, I was kind of more focused on your dad, because Von Braun is um, talked about in this book as well. But I wanted to leave something um, more for for the readers, uh, you know, so they can enjoy more than just what we've talked about, because there's so much more in your book. But um, we can go in any direction that you want to go. But do you know if some of the other governments, the other countries have um, still suppressed this information?
1: Until... Uh, the 80s, uh, all of the allied governments deferred to the U.S. Uh. because the U.S. the U.S. was responsible for the Buchenwald war crimes trial. So all of the depositions and documentation held by other allied countries came to the U.S., whereupon it was s- sorted. Uh, and And uh, suppressed as needed uh, but once once some of the documents started to come out, uh, other countries have been much more welcoming to these guys. Uh, in Canada, they flew the surviving uh, Buchenwald airmen to Germany for a memorial service at the at Buchenwald, uh, there have been a number of, uh, events and documentaries about them. Uh, but certainly it was, it was very late right. and it was after most of them, because a lot of the men died earlier than my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and now I, I only know if, Maybe three airmen that are who are still alive. One of them American.
0: Wow. So yeah, there's still a long way to go, uh, Mr. Martini. Thank you very much. This book has some of the best examples of what humans can do under incredible, incredibly bad conditions, horrid conditions. And then there's other parts where, like with the the Senate Judiciary Committee, when people are less than noble, and it, it's just it just it was a very it was a very intense emotional roller coaster reading this book. Uh, is there anything as far as people who are going to read your book and learn about the airmen, is there anything they can do to help create or yeah, I guess um, correct the story of the book uh, airmen?
1: The main thing is to, is to read it and think about it mm-hmm. and, and help increase awareness of the situation. I would dearly love to see another resolution push through Congress to acknowledge these men, and I would really like to have uh, the the uh, NASA official history changed to reflect the actual wartime history of Verne von Braun and the other rocket guys. Uh, and since the resolution failed three times when the airmen were alive and there were congressional members involved, and the VFW was involved, and the Foreign Legion was involved, American, I mean, American Legion. Uh, I think it, it's going to take a loud voice from uh, from people who have read the book and con- connected with it to make that happen. But anybody who is interested in more details or or Helping with this can get in touch with me through my website.
0: Okay. And what is that website? Uh,
1: it's www.frederickmartini.com. Okay. And there's a bunch of extra information about Betrayed and hundreds of photographs and more information about Bougainville and the Eighth Air Force and B 17s. Uh, it's all there and also a contact link for me.
0: Yeah, we we have uh, we have not covered so much as in this book. There's certainly so much more to it. But Mr. Martini, thank you very much for your time. This book, Betrayed, Secrecy, Lies and Consequences, is available on Amazon. Uh, Mr. Martini, thank you very much for your for your effort and thank you for your time.
1: You're very welcome, Ray.